Welcome to Pro Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here live and in person with both of my co-hosts today, Alex Lawson. Hello to you both. It's great to be here. And also Haley Knopf. I'm here. I'm in New York. <laughs> Haley! It's wild. Is that allowed? <laughs> Are you breaking some kind of, like, federal law by being here? I, don't I know. sure hope not, but <laughs> I guess I'll find out. It is so nice to have the gang all in person. We've done so many remote recordings, many more to come in our future. But when we can get the gang together, it's really nice. Uh, Haley, I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot here, only because, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, we revisited the fact that you are an avowed Patriots fan. And if you want to share mm-hmm. with the folks a little unpleasantness in your trip <laughs> to the East Coast yesterday. I was hoping you would bring this okay. up. <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, force the the listeners to unpack this with me, but I flew from Burbank to JFK. And Burbank is a very delightful, very small airport where you have to walk <laughs> up to your plane physically. And I noticed everyone in front of me was taking photos. And I was like, what are these... Have people like not flown before? <laughs> and then I look up and it is the official New York Jets commercial airliner, I guess. Wow. That they, their their charter, which is also yeah. used for commercial flights. Uh, yes. Yeah. As as you basically then by uh, yeah. JetBlue. I I didn't realize, but I didn't even think through that team planes would be used in commercial flights. So this is all news. Yeah. To me. No, me either. It was it was very interesting, but You've I... have been signed to a 10-day contract, I think, with the, I, with the Jets. Yeah, I think technically this means that I am now <laughs> a New York Jet, which is deeply disturbing for me as a Patriots <laughs> fan. And as, and as soon as it landed, they all become New York Jets because they're Jets in New York, but... Nice. Anyway. Great. Nice. Well, right. you know. Love that. Uh, so anyway, we have just all hosts today. We thought that that was pretty fitting for Haley's... Well, I, I was going to say return... But while it's a return to the to the studio for Amber and I, we were saying before, this is the first time we've all recorded together. Yeah. So just running the three-host weave here, and I wanted to start out by talking about NFTs. And NFTs in this context stands for a real neat freaking trial. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> Come on. You know, we'll let a lot of stuff go with some chuckles, but that's, that all one was right. pretty bad. <laughs> All right, I can't promise it'll get better from here, but this is actually a very interesting case. It is about the actual NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and we got some pretty new and very interesting case law this week because a Manhattan jury found that an L.A. designer's use of the iconic Hermes Birkin handbag in his line of non-fungible tokens basically amounted to trademark infringement, and the jury handed down this six-figure verdict in favor of Hermes. And the case, we're talking about it, it is one of the first and certainly the most prominent intellectual property case to go to trial over NFTs, which are, you know, sort of, aren't really new anymore, but as far as, like, the legal system getting their arms around them, still not a lot of firm case law on that front. And from the the early response to this decision, to, to this verdict, is that it will go some way toward clarifying how trademark law applies to these digital assets. I do have a low-level fascination with Birkin bags <laughs> just because of the wide variety, how exclusive it is to like even get on a list to buy one, how expensive they are. Yeah. So this really has a lot to unpack for me here. Well, you're not alone. And I will say that in just sort of like prepping this story for the podcast in my apartment yesterday, I just like tossed off a question to my wife who's in the other room. And I was like, 
wait, how much do Birkin bags cost again? I know it's a lot, but I was like, how much do they cost? She was like, uh, I don't know, like 20 or 30,000. Why? And then I was like, and then I realized this is a really bad question to ask like a week before Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, I had to quickly, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, it's for the show. Uh, I'm sorry. We're not in that kind of position right now. But anyway, so you're not the only one who's got a fascination with sure. a handbag. So this, this sort of legal fight that we're talking about, though, this began after an L.A. designer named Mason Rothschild he rolled out about 100 NFTs that were basically just these colorful images of the iconic Birkin bag. There were different patterns, and they were adorned in, like, these colorful fur sets. And he said, these are my NFTs, and he put them up for sale. And Hermes, of course, quickly sued and basically argued that the tokens are confusing customers and also inhibiting the company's own ability to basically use either NFTs or other emergent digital tools to sell and market their very expensive handbags. Now, Rothschild, the whole way, has vigorously defended himself as kind of like a modern-day Andy Warhol. He says, you know, I'm, I have the constitutional right to sell and market works of art, you know, as long as they are somewhat transformative, even if it prominently features trademarked goods. You know, we can all think of the Andy Warhol with the Campbell's soup can and all of that. That's a very famous, uh, very famous litigation around that. So where we pick it back up is that Rothschild sold about a hundred of these, what he called meta Birkin NFTs. Okay. I have to stop you just to say that's a great (laughs) title, but keep going. Well, that's the fact that he called it that is going to figure pretty prominently here in the actual legal uh, analysis. He sold them for about 450 bucks a pop uh, in 2021, which isn't bad when you, when you do the math there. And Hermes said in its suit that they were subsequently traded on the blockchain many times over about more than like a million dollars worth of trades uh, in about the month that followed after it. So quite a lot of money at stake and quite a notable brand here, uh, you know, locking horns. I understand the NFTs are not new, like you said, but it is still so strange that we're even discussing something like this being traded at such a... a Like a high number. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so the jury, let's get back to to what the jury found here. They did not really buy into this Andy Warhol comparison. No, I take it. no. Um, and uh, our own Pete Brush did a great job running down both what had been argued here and then um, even some first impression uh, reactions. But what you need to know is that there, this was a nine-person jury. They held Rothschild liable for trademark infringement, trademark dilution, they also found that he unlawfully cyber squatted on the internet domain metaburkins.com. So with all of that told, Rothschild is now on the hook to pay back about $110,000 of uh, profit and resale commissions for the sales of the NFTs themselves uh, and about $23,000 in damages for the domain squatting. And at trial, Hermes's lawyers very really honed in on trying to draw this distinction between Rothschild as an artist, as he described himself, and as just a businessman who's trying to sell something and make money off of it. And they used his own texts to friends and associates to do this. For instance, uh, Rothschild wrote to one friend in a text that came came to light at trial that, quote, he doesn't think people realize how much you can get away with in art by saying, quote, in the style of. And if you know anything about, like, the sort of transformations that you have to do to trademark works in order to get protection from trademark claims, that is one way to kill an infringement defense 
real quick. Um, he also said uh, he was boasting to another friend that he was, quote, in the rare position to bully Hermes. Ooh. So it's not even, the mask is basically fully off when you subpoena these texts and just sort of saying, I'm here to make money and I'm actually quite relishing the fact that I'm using their brand to do it. So that does leave me in a weird spot at the end of this saga where there's interesting questions about are NFTs art or are they truly just a commercial item? And it seems like we've got just such clear facts here about him being like, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to make some money off of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would love like to make a definitive statement about whether NFTs are art, especially since some of them are very garish and offensive <laughs> to me personally. That's not an issue here. Um, but because of the facts, like you say, Amber, in the and the text that I just read, there was another one which I forgot to mention that he kind of described his business model of these NFTs as pump and shill, i.e. pump up their value and just sell them out to anybody who wants to get one. So, so the early response to the verdict has been more in the vein of like a little bit of a helpful guidance than like a hard and fast rule about whether or not they're actually art that earns certain protections under intellectual property law. Now, for his part, Rothschild said that the verdict marked, quote, a great day for luxury brands and a terrible day for artists. And he said the case isn't over. He's probably going to appeal, or he at least hinted as much yesterday. So we don't have a lot to say in terms of, like, a sweeping legal doctrine about the protectability of NFTs as, like, an expressive art. But the facts, like you say, were particularly egregious, and there were a couple of attorneys told our own Tiffany Hu yesterday that Rothschild, actually, his decision to use Birkin in the name, both of the project and the domains, was likely a death blow in the eyes of the jury. So, you know, uh, it's it's definitely an interesting case, and I'm sure it won't be the last. And, you know, maybe on a more neutral field, we might get a little more guidance on whether and to what extent we can consider NFTs as expressive art. Next up, a Jewish lawyer and magistrate recently won a $1.1 million verdict against an Ohio judge who she said fired her because she wanted to take time off for the high holidays. The verdict found that this judge violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause, though notably the jury did not find that the judge violated this lawyer's 14th Amendment rights and religiously discriminated against her. As the leader of our employment authority group, I mean, I see a lot of claims about religious discrimination. You don't often see them against a judge. So that's really notable here, I would say. People do forget judges, also bosses. Yeah, Ooh, I mean, yeah. They're, they're do, they do make a lot of missteps, and this is a really big verdict. So I want to get into just sort of the facts here, like what exactly happened. Yeah, the lawyer is Kimberly Edelstein, and she was a staff attorney for Butler County Judge Greg S. Stevens. So Butler County, it's kind of, I guess it's like 30 miles north of Cincinnati just to, to place us. According to Edelstein, she was a staff attorney and magistrate for nearly a decade under Judge Stevens' predecessor. In the summer of 2016, Edelstein said she told Judge Stevens that she needed eight days off that October for the high holidays. And after she made that request, Judge Stevens allegedly yelled at her, said, holy cow, eight days. That, that was a quote that was in the transcripts, <laughs> the holy cow part. Um, but she said he did eventually calm down after she explained that, you know, these are not, these are work-restricted days. And the previous judge did not have any problem with her taking them off. And even though Judge Stevens seemed to calm down and say it was fine, 
Edelstein said he almost immediately fired her after she made that request. The next morning is when he started the termination, uh, took the first steps towards termination. And she was officially fired August 1st of 2016. It's one of those fact patterns that sounds so egregious. And again, I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to be too Pollyannish about like, we've had a million stories about judges who do various bad things in various contexts. So I don't mean to be like, I can't believe a judge would do this. But just being so brazen as alleged here uh, is quite striking. And it makes sense why she then sued. What did the shape of that legal challenge look like? Yeah, so she sued in 2017, and she claimed that the termination was because she tried to practice her religion. The suit also initially included some other defendants in allegations. Perhaps uh, most worth mentioning here is Edelstein claimed that the county prosecutor and others in the office made false and derogatory comments in response to the discrimination claims she was thinking of pursuing at the time. And she said that was an attempt to tarnish her career. However, by the time this case made it to trial, and that was before an Ohio federal jury, Judge Stevens was the only defendant left. Edelstein actually represented herself in this case. Oh, interesting. And during closing arguments, she described the judge as a, quote, extreme Christian and a former pastor. And here's a quote from her. I was told you don't fit in. I didn't not fit in because of some personality issue. I didn't fit in because I was a fundamentalist Jew among three fundamentalist Christians. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty stark portrayal of what went on. I would imagine the judge very clearly disagrees with this characterization. So what did the judge have to say for himself? Judge Stevens argued that he fired her because of tension between her and his other staff members. Just, <laughs> you know, tension that was he saw as not getting resolved. Things weren't going to work out, so we had to let her go. Even after the jury's verdict, the judge's attorney told Law 360, we strongly believe the evidence did not support the verdict, and we are considering our options. Well, and let's break down that verdict in a little more detail. How did we get to this 1.1 million figure? We cover billion-dollar litigation all the time, but on a on just an interpersonal level here, this is quite a bit of money. How did they it get is, to this? It is, yeah, and for just one individual. Yeah. So it's just for that First Amendment violation, and the jury awarded Edelstein $835,000 in back pay, $250,000 in compensatory damages, and $35,000 in punitive damages. And I also want to note that as of this recording, Judge Stevens hasn't filed a notice of appeal or anything, but it sounds like that's certainly on the table. So we can't say for certain that this verdict is the end of this whole saga. We'll, as always, have to stay tuned. I have an important question for you guys. Is it illegal to steal someone's voice? Well, yeah. I mean, look what happened to Ursula in The Little Mermaid. I mean, she got the seas justice on that one. I'm so wow. glad the you made seas justice. <laughs> you know. I'm so glad you made that reference. I almost wrote a Little Mermaid joke into the script and I was like, nah, I don't know. Don't so, worry, I got you covered. You. Don't worry about that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that is the essential question in a pretty fascinating IP suit brought by Rick Astley against a rapper known as Young Gravy. So Astley is best known for a song, Never Gonna Give You Up. That's that 80s hit that everybody knows because it was a hit in the 80s, 
but it cemented its place in pop culture because of Rick Rolling. For anybody who's of course. forgetting what that is, that's when you <laughs> click on some link and suddenly that video pops up. Um, I've never felt more ancient than you explaining what Rick Rolling is. Look, you know, <laughs> it's easy to forget, but it, it is just a fun and harmless and very popular internet oh, yeah. meme activity, whatever. So Astley has sued Young Gravy, accusing him of flagrantly copying his voice from that song in a track called Betty Get Money. Okay. Astley says the song violates his right of publicity because it closely mimics his distinctive voice. According to the suit, here's a quote, in an effort to capitalize off the immense popularity and goodwill of Mr. Astley, defendants conspired to include a deliberate and nearly indistinguishable imitation of Mr. Astley's voice throughout the song. The public could not tell the difference. The imitation of Mr. Astley's voice was so successful, the public believed it was actually Mr. Astley singing. That's kind of impressive. Yeah, so to that end, <laughs> I want us to go ahead and listen to a little clip of the two tracks and see what you guys think about how identical it really is. So first up, let's do the Rick Astley original. Twist my arm like I need to, like I need an excuse to hear this. <laughs> right. Let's hit it, please. Oh, so long. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Undeniably, that is a bop. We all still love it. Yeah. But now, let's check out the opening of the Young Gravy track. Okay, that is also a banger. And yeah. Uh, merits of the case aside, I will be adding that to a playlist. I was going to say, I'm not trying to put a finger on the scale here or anything or compromise our journalistic integrity. Not bad. But what, okay, what are we talking about here from a legal standpoint? I mean, that sounds, I mean, that sounds like Rick Astley, like, is on the purple syrup or something. But other than that way, like, it sounds basically identical, isn't it? It does. Is it just a sample? Which there's like a lot of case law and sampling. I mean, I don't really. There is a lot of case law and sampling. So what we actually have here is an interpolation. Mm. So Young Gravy cleared the underlying musical composition to Never Gonna Give You Up. So okay. he obtained a license that allowed him to recreate the music and lyrics from the original song on a new track. That is different from a sample. Samples are where you obtain a license to use the actual sound recording of a famous song. Young Gravy did try to do that, tried to clear a sample, but was denied. So according to Astley and this lawsuit, to get around the lack of a valid sample, Young Gravy and his team hired an artist who goes by the name of Popnik to imitate Astley's quote-unquote signature voice. And Popnik even said on Instagram in a video and some other places that he wanted the song to sound identical to Astley's voice. My goodness, this is fascinating. I had no <laughs> idea that this is how all of that worked. What are attorneys saying the odds are that Astley comes out on top here. This is the part where we kind of really get into the meat of the legal arguments here. Yeah. Astley's suit relies on a Ninth Circuit ruling from 1988, and that one's pretty interesting, too. It held that it was unlawful for Ford Motor Company to hire a sound alike to imitate the voice of Bette Midler 
for a series of television commercials without her permission. I kind of remember this. I had a history teacher in high school who was obsessed with this case. And that that doesn't make me like a not an expert. I, 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 we're going to hear more about the case in a second, I assume. But I just remember people like, you guys don't know what Bette Midler went through to, like, <laughs> to get her publicity rights shored up. He was a weird guy. I um, really like the nesting doll here, though. Of, <laughs> I mean, of course, publicity rights are often someone famous. But when I saw the underlying precedent here as Bette Midler, I just kind of love that detail. So according to Astley, that Midler ruling covers even situations where impersonators secured a license from another party to use the musical composition to a song in which the singer's voice is featured. But according to reporting by Tiffany Hu, our senior IP reporter, there's some key wrinkles here that could make this an uphill climb for Astley. The right of publicity basically protects an individual's ability to control the commercial use of their identity, but most states recognize an exception for entertainment projects that are creative in nature. This is obviously a song, not just an advertisement like that Ford commercial. So that distinction could be critical here. There are some echoes of the NFT uh, sure. uh, uh, Birkin dust up here, too, just in terms of like artistic expression, commercial speech, et cetera. Yeah, it's like a subbeat for Tiffany because she wrote on that as uh, yeah, well. Yeah, so. it's a big show for Tiffany. Thank you, Tiffany. Um, so this is because of, like you were saying in the NFT one, there is a classic tension between expressive works that are protected under the First Amendment versus in this case, the right of publicity that aims to protect an individual's right to control their name, their voice, their image for commercial purposes. Generally, the First Amendment will protect the use of a voice or likeness in a work when it's transformative. So again, very similar to the NFT story. So the court is going to have to assess here if the use falls into that transformative category. Young Gravy could also potentially try to claim that Astley's voice is not so recognizable that the public immediately identifies him from hearing this impersonator voice? I don't know about that, Gravy. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm sure they'll have musicologists take the stand if it gets to that to uh, testify to his recognizability, I suppose. Sure. And this is also where Astley may really push back, arguing that Young Gravy for years tried to obtain the sample license. Yeah. And there are statements about once he could not get that, trying to directly copy Astley's sound. Yeah, I so can see that. So that can be important evidence in this one as well. It's going to be a really interesting mix of the allegations from Astley and then the defenses on Young Gravy's side. But ultimately, this is one to watch, not just because this is basically a Rickroll in lawsuit form, which <laughs> I think is pretty funny. Beautiful. But because the use of samples and interpolation is so common these days, I mean— nostalgia is everywhere in pop culture right now, I think more than maybe ever before. And so any kind of ruling here could really be impactful on the music industry and exactly how far you can go with an interpolation. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, you're up today. Yes. I don't have a news story for us, per se. To be quite candid, it's more of like a like an Alex therapy session. Great. Or, Let's get into it. And also anyone else who wants to share as well. It's sort of a group therapy session, maybe. Something is happening to me. And I don't know why. I mean, I know why, but I don't know what to do about it. And it's that we've talked before Bill and I used to talk about this all the time about having legal reporter brains. Sure. And that manifests in a lot of different ways. But today I wanted to talk about the fact that I 
am really becoming a person who can't watch a TV show or a movie and not immediately think about, man, if this happened, I would write some sick Law 360 stories <laughs> about this. Well, I thought you were going to go the direction of that's not how this would actually play out in no. a courtroom yeah. because that would be really, we really doubled down on that feeling when we did Movie Club. Right. It's not that. I can still, I don't have such legal reporter brain that like I really care about when. Like the procedure. I understand dramatic license has to be taken. But like, for instance, well, I just watched the horror film Megan about yes. the animatronic killer doll. Yep. And, you know, I actually thought it was a pretty fun movie. Really towed the line between camp and sincerity. And I thought it was really fun. But I just couldn't help but think about, like, all the lawsuits this company oh. would have on its <laughs> No, I was actually whispering. Like, I try to be very respectful. You know, I'm— Sure. AMC Stubbs. Don't want to brag, but— you, you pray to the altar of Nicole Kidman. Exactly. Yeah. But I was whispering to my friend during it, like, negligence. Yeah. Negligence. <laughs> I was thinking, well, and then it honestly takes a couple of different iterations because I was watching Megan. I was like, oh man, the product liability here is just off the charts. And then I was like, wait a minute. No, it didn't actually, it was just yeah. a prototype. Didn't actually become a consumer product. And I'm like, Alex, why are you self-editing <laughs> a story that is not being written, will not be written? So the uh, next time you're watching something and you feel that reporter brain creeping up, I want you to come back at us with like what your headline would be. Yeah. Um, I mean, for Megan, I mean, I guess it would be, you know, killer dolls, a killer lawsuit. Oh, like, I mean, <laughs> yep. because they haven't, they have a dead to rights. I mean, and I, and it really made me sad because, you know, the fulcrum of the story is Allison Williams is like, what is she? She's like a engineer or something. AI, a computer scientist. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is she built the Megan and then it, it went it went haywire and i'm like oh you know she was just trying to be a be a good surrogate mother and then i don't her life's going to be ruined or something perhaps rightly so well, i look, don't know but there's going to be a sequel well that's a thing i was thinking and then oh that's the other that's what i meant to say i was like they there's a sequel i mean I'm, i won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it but it's basically tees up another kind of horror movie sequel type of thing that involves technology that wants to kill you but i was like you could go another way and just do the trial. Exactly. Do the I trial. I was thinking that too. This is what they, they, this is talked about in Scream 2 when Tim Oliphant reveals himself as the killer and he's like, it's all about the trial. This is how Movie Club comes back, everyone. <laughs> you decided it. I promise I didn't just bring this up as an excuse to do that, but like it was like I was talking to my wife about it and I was like, this is breaking the way. Well, I've been a legal reporter for like 10 years now and it's starting will, to take a toll. I will <laughs> also throw out that. You're not the only person to have this pop culture sure. reporter brain. Let me give a shout out to one of our expert analysis editors, Katie McNally, who's working on a series right now. The first one ran recently, so people can head on over to Law360 to find it, but analyzing employment issues in pop through the lens of pop culture. So okay. the first one is about the TV show Severance, which I was obsessed with. Yeah. And the interplay with trade secrets in the employment context. Oh, yeah. That's... So plenty to unpack there. So we're, we're not the only ones. Lawyers are out doing this too. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad that there's like a cottage industry of this now. Um, that's not going to help me though. I'm still, <laughs> in fact, it makes it worse. I'm just like, well, we're actually mining content out of this. <laughs> this is like actually, you know. It's going good for right, your job. Going right to my paycheck. Yes, it exactly. is. This is. So yes. I'm telling you, this is not an affliction, Alex. We don't need to fix it. This is actually a feature. Oh, I don't lean know about, in. Yeah. Lean in, as Oof. they say. I don't know about that, but this has been helpful, I think. And very, very healthy. And I think we should all come to the table with stuff like this. 
talk to your friends about legal reporter brain is uh, is is what I want everyone to take away from this. <laughs> well, thank you for that little therapy session and been great to have you both in studio together. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. Thank you both for uh, for indulging me. I appreciate it. And Haley, it's so good to be saying this as I look and gesture your direction. Crazy. Crazy is what <laughs> it is. So glad to be here in beautiful New York City. <laughs> We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our contributing reporters, Pete Brush, Tiffany Hu, and Eric Heisey. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us five stars and a written review wherever you're listening right now. That definitely helps other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.